it felt like a woman had gone a bit crazy uh, and decided to do a passion project, bringing in all these monkeys, but she'd just be feeding them like chocolate and Chris. And, <laughs> and that was what we had to feed them. Hey, thanks for tuning in to episode 39 of the Rostrovina Project. Today's guest is a spoken word poet and filmmaker. You may know him from the old farm bus, the back of the bus sessions podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you rhythmical Mike. Where'd you grow up? Girl, I'm from Ripley. Whereabouts are you a Nottingham lad? No, no, I'm... Well, I live in Brighton, but I'm originally from Oxford. Oh, bless you, mate. Bless yeah. you. Yes, yeah, so, well, you won't know Ripley then. It's a small little town. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's in, uh, it's in Derbyshire. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I kind of know Derby, but not really. Okay, well, it is. <laughs> Ripley, Ripley is very well known for for where the edl and bmp were, were branched from the, the the very racist national parties is that from is that near luton i'm i'm sure it happened uh, very strongly in luton as well but no we're, we're a few hours from luton so derbyshire it's like there's ilkeston there's hena there's ripley there's very small towns but that they're, they're quite profound and known for the breeding part of these national parties so yeah it's got it's got a hard face ripley oh okay fair enough (laughs) (laughs) i I love it i love it it's just a very you know it's a small town with small town syndrome that's sort of ripley oh okay um you still live there i do mate yeah we live on a farm oh up in ripley did you grow up on a farm Pretty much, yeah. So we had a small holding, which uh, in Denby, so another small town, probably about 10 minutes away. No, five minutes away even uh, in a car. Um, and then my mum ended up uh, coming onto this this bigger yard. So it's I think we've got about 18 acres, 19 acres. Um, but yeah, in the middle of this small town. It's, it's quite interesting though, because starting off saying it's like quite a racist place. Um, my granddad lived in... Or, or lived in Persia, so he's Persian. Oh. And then he came over from Persia to be a doctor in Ripley. Oh. So it was, really, it was a, cra- a crazy time, an interesting time, because he ended up, you know, being the one that fixed everybody up and made them feel good again and all this sort of thing. So they're like, oh, we, we like you because you're the fixer, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're not keen on all the other people with the uh, the, the tan skin. <laughs> so it's quite an interesting... Per- Persia's Iran, right? Yeah, 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 that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah, he immigrated over, um, met my grandma, who was a nurse at the time. He was the doctor. And then, yeah, they had a... Three three daughters, my mum and my other two aunties. Oh, that's um, really sweet. Have you got a chance to like go over there at all? So I'd love to, do you know. Um, my mum, like, they're very passionate about their heritage. Um, their their second name's Mullen Faroes, and it's sort of there's not many Mullen Faroeses. It's a joint of the English Mullen and Faroes. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's something the family hold dearly and quite strongly. So. That they're proud of their heritage and I'd love to go over and sort of find out a little bit more about it and and feel that culture a little bit ah oh, that's super interesting you say you said in one of your podcasts you've traveled the world like where where have you been 
basically getting kicked out of my school um, and then working on a farm. I ended up just literally uh, nine to five in, probably more than that, actually. Uh, let's say seven to seven in <laughs> <laughs> on the farm. And I remember it was one day where the rain was just hitting me sideways uh, as hard as it can come down and as cold as it could ever be. You got about 14 layers on and it's still freezing. And uh, I, I did, I, lo- I looked over at my dad and me and my dad look remarkably similar. <laughs> we're very similar people and I just it is 50 odd and I, I looked up and I thought oh my god this is what my life is going to be now till that age uh so I I sort of had a tantrum I, I did actually I went and tried another job as well I went to Thornton's um oh is that the chocolate this is shop? All, yeah well yeah. no it was the factory so oh. I thought it was sort you know in my head I had uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Umpa Lumpers, jumping around, singing, dancing, throwing chocolate around. It wasn't quite that. It was, <laughs> in fact, polar the opposite. So, yeah, I was in a very, uh, I was in quite a rut because I thought I've got no qualifications. I'm really struggling uh, to find a purpose or a passion or anything like that. So I ended up um, talking to me mate at the pub and we're like, what? The F. Can you swear on this podcast? Yeah, or go do for you it. Try not to. No, what no, the fuck? What, <laughs> <laughs> what the F are we going to do with ourselves? So we went and sat with his dad. Actually, he was very sort of quite a spiritual or uh, quite a deep thinker, uh, existential man, and he just said, uh, "Listen, lads, why why don't you just?" go away <laughs> and we were like all right we'll leave and then <laughs> and, and what he meant was yeah go traveling go do something different meet some see some cultures meet some people so we went and bought um tickets to australia uh, got our visas within a week or two weeks i think it was and we, yeah but from that decision it only took us a few weeks to actually get gone so i went and did a year in australia and then I, I don't know. I had such a good time there. I absolutely loved everything about it. I'm sure we can get into that, but I felt quite, um, I, I didn't have a purpose still, so I didn't want to go back home yet. So then uh, I decided instead of just coming back home, I went to South Africa yeah. um, and did another year in South Africa. And I've done miscellaneous other bits in between that. I did a bit in Vietnam and Thailand and all, all places like that. But um I think I think they were my two sort of big pointers. South South Africa was where I actually found myself and what I wanted from life and and why I de- like decided to come back to Ripley and I felt like I could actually make an imprint into Ripley. So yeah, I'd say Australia and South Africa are my two homes places <laughs> and building grounds. <laughs> the two places you spent a chunk of time and oh, where's like mm. the most disappointing place you've ever been? Disappointing place. Where you thought it was going to be one way and then it turned out to be another or you just didn't like it for whatever reason? I I, I like that question, man. I think that's a great question. Um, I think it was, you know, I've enjoyed everywhere I've been to to an extent, but it's mainly the the places you build expectation up to when you're there. So in Australia, I remember going on the Great Ocean Road. So, you know, that if you've got a prefix, which is great, it's uh, it's got to live up to some expectation there. And uh, I was so excited for it. And I, I did. I enjoyed the most of it. But really, I was, I, I was knackered a lot of the time. It was long drives. Then you get out. And the first night we were there, 
Uh, I stayed, it was lovely, uh, in the outback, essentially. You're looking up at the stars and they're about this big, each star. It looks absolutely incredible. But I woke up and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I must have been in bed with about a hundred mosquitoes, no, a thousand <laughs> mosquitoes, thousands and thousands and thousands. Because honestly, everyone, I, I, I sort of felt uncomfortable. I got up and everyone was like, whoa what is up with you? And I was like, what? And then I looked down and my whole body was just covered. Um, and it was just so itchy and painful and just annoying, a nuisance. So, um, yeah, after that, the great ocean road, but it didn't feel so great anymore. Oh, so no. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd have to say really that, that let me down a bit. It was, I, I just been bit to shreds. Then it was long days in cars, scratching and itching. <laughs> yeah. and it, really it, was, it wasn't. <laughs> And, and, and to be honest, um, I'd, I've done uh, three weeks in uh, New Zealand as well. And I, abs- I love New Zealand, but I went with my mate who he just uh, is so relaxed. And I want to be doing and seeing things all the time. I'm really excited about adventures and stuff happening. I want to see whales. I want to do stuff. Um, but he was just really content with driving. So we'd drive for like eight hours a day. And I'm just, all you see in New Zealand really is just loads of amazing mountainous bits, but a lot of greenery. So mm. yeah, I'd have to say New Zealand, some parts were absolutely stunning and I love Lord of the Rings. So that helps. Uh, I, I had the soundtrack on, but in the, on the whole, uh, there was, there was a little bit of boredom creeping in, in New Zealand as well, just driving all day. <laughs> Whereabouts mm. in South Africa did you stay? So I spent eight months in uh, Pretoria, um, Pretoria. I think it's the capital, actually. I I need to do my geography now. I don't think it's Joburg. I think it's classed as Pretoria. Um, Okay. It's fairly central. Um, I'm really messing up my geography here. And then uh, (laughs) I was staying in it. I was working on a primate sanctuary, looking after sort of monkeys and things like that. Yeah, it was really dope, man. I loved it. There was set like capuchins. The the capuchins are the ones that are in movies like Hangover and stuff because they're quite well trained and, and well to trained. <laughs> so good at acting. But we did. We, <laughs> yeah, exactly that. <laughs> you should have seen this one that I was with. <laughs> he had a top hat and tail. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then we had baboons, uh, marmosets, the little ones, and and we just had to keep like building the enclosures and, and and really helping out with that, which it was a terrific experience. Um, I just, I didn't like the way it was ran uh, eventually. Um, oh, really? Yeah. The, I mean, there's corruption everywhere anyway. Um, it was, it felt like a woman had gone a bit crazy uh, and decided to do a passion project, bringing in all these monkeys, but she'd just be feeding them like chocolate and crisps. And, <laughs> and that was what we had to feed them uh, was uh, marshmallows, I remember, all the time. And I thought, where are they getting this in the wild? Where do you go to find a packet of walkers? But she she felt like this was a good diet for, for a lot of them. <laughs> They'd literally be be dying of of cancers and and all oh. these terrible things very early on. So I thought, are we just that end place for these poor monkeys to go and get shockingly bad diets and and creep off into into death? <laughs> How lovely! <laughs> so what was it about working with monkeys that made you uh, 
uh, decide what you wanted to do when you returned home? <laughs> I mean, so that's, yes, this is quite a jump story um, and quite off topic in essence, but this is where the passion sort of struck from. Um, so basically I'm out in South Africa and I'm looking after these uh, primates and this is a very pivotal moment in my story. So I'm at work and I've not spoken to me dad, if bearing in mind, because I've been to Australia for a year, gone to South Africa. This is probably a year and a half, maybe a bit more in. And uh, I get a phone call from me dad. And just to side note this, my dad is your yeah, archetypal footballer and farmer. And his name's Dave. You know what you're getting. <laughs> he's just bold. <laughs> he looks the part. He's... he's very stereotypical for for what you can imagine so for a, a dave to be <laughs> and, <laughs> and anyway i get this phone call and it says dad on it um and i, I just never expected that call so i looked up and uh i, I answered and i went hey mate how, how you doing i've not heard from you in ages and then my dad was sort of talking he's like yeah i just wanted to see how you were and then what it was ended up being was just basically it was just a cavalcade of bad things that have been going on at home. And to top that phone call off was uh, he told me my best friend or a very good friend of mine had been stabbed and killed in a knife crime incident. And oh. at the time, Derby was quite ripe for, for crime, and particularly um, knife crime in general um, and uh, just aggression. It was quite a town of aggression. So... Yeah, this is where my story sort of um, transcends from my, the the main part of my journey. I like um, there's a quote I can't remember who said it, but he says, uh, um, "Every man has two lives. His second starts when he realizes he just has one." <laughs> I think it's, a, it's such a powerful awesome. quote, <laughs> such a cool quote, and I think that's what happened in that time of that phone call. Uh, Did was you my have to face up to your mortality? Is that what it was? I think so. I think I think I just um, it it just hit me very hard that we have got one go at this. Um, and uh, I mean, you may be Buddhist, you may believe this, you may believe whatever you believe. But for me, it, it hit me quite hard that um, somebody my age who I'd hung around with a lot of times, been clubs and nights out, wasn't going to be here anymore. Um, and you know, what imprint did he leave behind? What did he put into this world? What what good did he give? What bad did he give? What what happened? What's his legacy? How's he going to be remembered? And and that was just sort of very strong inside of me. Um, so what I did, which was very unexpected of me, as I've been kicked out of school, the only certificate I was left with was one to tell me I'm dyslexic. That was all I knew about myself. <laughs> and uh, particularly English. <laughs> oh, bless my, my brother. <laughs> and, uh, and the, the, the f crazy thing is, man, um, uh, the, the, the English lessons in particular were the ones I really messed about in because I was told I was stupid. Do you know when they make you just stand up and read when you can't read? Oh, oh the, your heart's just going a million miles an hour. Then all your mates start laughing at you. You get red, you get sweats. And then I, I just turned into a clown from that. So oh, I, yeah. I never, reading and writing was my absolute no-nos. There's no way uh, you could get me reading and writing. Um, but this day, because I felt so emotional, so passionate, so angry, so hurt, uh, I just, it's funny, um, 
we had uh, notepads to take observations of the monkeys that I was working with. We had to do like every five minutes, uh, Coco has scratched its bum or Coco done this. <laughs> um, but I just said, I, I said to the, the um, manager, like, oh, I'm taking the day off. I've got, I've got to go today. Um, and I just sat in my, my room or my dorm and I wrote for hours. Like I, I've never wrote a thing in my life. And I just wrote for the whole day, in essence, and I cried. But it was the, um, it's just like the most cathartic experience of my whole life. I've never been through that sort of process, and it felt so healing. So yes, yeah, so I'd start talking about my friend mm-hmm. and how I felt towards that situation, but actually, I'd end up going back into my existence and, and my time where I felt hurt, where I felt uh, uh, misunderstood, or any of these things. And I was just writing it all out and I couldn't believe it. It was so powerful. So South Africa for me after that was like, I was Dora the Explorer with a pen. I was just running around writing and documenting everything down. Um, so yeah, that's that's why South Africa ended up giving me my purposeful moment and, and who, what I wanted out of life. Uh, and I felt like I'd been given a passion in that moment from that phone call. Oh, that's really interesting. So it almost wasn't even South Africa. It was just where you happened to be when this happened. A hundred percent. That was it. I mean, maybe it was helpful that I had breathing space, though, because, you know, if I was at home, I'd probably go out on a piss with all my mates. It might not have happened somewhere else as well, where you were. Uh, You could have gone out with friends and sort of spoken out. Uh, spoken about it instead you had to actually like face up to it because you were on your own is that what you think happened? Uh, 100% man yeah I think that's a, a big part of it just being in an isolated manner with people that you don't really know can't get on a level they don't know the person that you're trying to explain to so who who do you go to and you, tr- you can't really get in touch with your mates because the signal is shocking there as well <laughs> it's story of my life and uh, yeah, yeah. I just I, I had a pen and a paper to write with, so I just I just started speaking to myself in essence through that. But that's so interesting. Oh god. So that and that that then begun the journey, really, man. And uh, I never really understood the power of words or the power of expression and creativity as well. Actually, yeah. So were you into hip hop prior to finding your writing? Or was this something that came afterwards? I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more spoken, so I'd class myself as spoken word poetry. I do like hip hop, mm. um, but I also, I think you're a little, I think they're all under the same umbrella. Uh, you know, rap stands for rhythm and poetry. So mm. it's, uh, it is in there together. Um, what I like to do on tracks is be able to talk as much as you want to say uh, without having to condense it or be too structured. Whereas obviously in hip hop, you've got to be on beat to make it sound good in the pocket. And I don't quite like to be straight on the pocket, if that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, I'm more, I'm more poetry, more spoken wordy. Um, interestingly, as a kid, we used to go on uh, family holidays away and me, my dad, my sister, all had a CD each. Uh, I think it was two CDs each, actually. And my dad would be going down the line of, like, Sting and Prince, uh, primarily. My sister, she's very mainstream, so she would have been going, like, 
90s, uh, now 90s, I think it is. Uh. Um, but yeah, as a kid, and this is only, um, I'd have been 10, 10, 11, but my two CDs are um, Eminem and uh, The Streets. Mm. But The Streets was my favourite by Miles because I love the fact uh, Mike Skinner could tell a story uh, through his art. I've never heard of a concept album before. And he he told a whole story through the, the first song to the end song and I couldn't believe it. So that really excited me. Um, but then after... after 12, 13, I just stopped with music. I stopped with anything, listening, trying to play, anything like that. It just, it slipped my gaze. So yeah, at this point I'm about 21, 22 um, and getting back into it somehow. Yeah, that's interesting you say Eminem actually, because he was like one of the first music I can remember listening to where it wasn't like a product of what my parents listened to. Ah, no, yeah, yeah you're yeah. rebellious act. <laughs> it was a rebellious act. And also, like, in in those days, you didn't really need... They had parental advisory on the thing, but you could just walk in by yourself and uh, <laughs> just buy a CD. <laughs> there wasn't really that. Um, was that, I, like, HMV? Uh, I think that would have been Woolworths. If you remember Woolworths? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course I can. <laughs> big days, big yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, so... Is that even a shop anymore? I don't think so. No, the, I think it is in like uh, Australia or somewhere still has a Woolworths. I, yeah. I went to it and I couldn't believe it. It was so nostalgic. Oh, it was um, New Zealand have a Woolworths, definitely. That was interesting. Uh, and I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. It was like seeing a Blockbusters. And I thought, <laughs> yeah. right, we're going to town. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. In my hometown, actually, Blockbusters and Woolworths used to be not right next to each other. Oh, mate, you yeah. had a right day out of it then. You were <laughs> going into the pain. Get some, get some. Do, do you like, have you, have you seen uh, South Park? Do you like South yeah, Park? Yeah, I love South Park, yeah. Oh, mate, there's a there's an episode where Randy buys uh, Blockbusters. Um, oh, and it, it's a little bit later on. It's like probably season 14, 15. But yeah. um, it's so funny because, it, have you seen The Shining? Yeah. Yeah, crazy film. So they basically... They, they play off of The Shining and because nobody's going to Randy's store because he's bought his Blockbusters, which he thought was such a good idea. <laughs> he just starts turning crazy. It's so funny, man. Yeah, that's pretty much what would have happened in Blockbusters when it was sort of piping down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. So what, what was the music that your parents listened to that imprinted on you? Music, I, I suppose... Um, David Bowie uh, would be uh, a big influence, uh, unknowingly, and sort of gone into my subconscious. <laughs> but yeah, just a man that had been uh, daring to try anything out and everything out and putting no sort of barriers and boundaries on what was possible in music and how music should be or shouldn't be. There, there is no restriction. And I think that is what poetry is in essence. So... I'd, I suppose really listening as much as I could to him with my mum uh, in the kitchen on vinyl, all them sort of things. I, I'm like, this is major time to crown. And you just think, <laughs> yeah. what, what's this guy on about? Like, what is this? But, you know, it's David Bowie, so you allow it. And why not be that sort of artist where you get to a certain stage where people just respect that it's who you are, what you are is 
um, your own product, your own making. So yeah, I think he'd be a big influence unknowingly. Unknowingly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That is interesting how I think bands always worry about when they write a new piece of music that doesn't sound like their other music. They're always like, mm. oh, this isn't us. And it's just, even watching the Queen film, uh, there's one part where he's like, this song isn't Queen. And he's like, Queen's whatever we do. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no one will listen to it and think that isn't Queen. They'll just think, oh, that's interesting. That's So yeah, it's... I think people paint themselves into boxes creatively a lot. Uh, especially when they get a fan base. Have you found that with your writing at all? Have you put any restrictions on what you think people expect from you at all? I think that that's, a, that's an absolutely brilliant question, which uh, alludes to, um, again, an array of answers and a magnitude of options there. Because, you know, th- this is interesting. I-, I love a band called uh, Fat Freddy's Drop. Do you know them? I've, I've heard of them. I don't really know their music. Uh, but oh, I, I love that. Well, they're just very ska, reggae. In fact, they're about 15 different genres, which is the sign of a great band for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I fell in love with them for the first album based on a true story. And then I went to watch them in Nottingham and I was so excited. I've seen them a few times. I actually saw them in New Zealand, which is where they're from. So that was a lovely hometown gig and it felt very... Um, Nostalgic just for them. Um, But then I went to Nottingham to see them and they just played the whole second album, which was a complete, I'm not even just talking, they tweaked it or they sounded uh, of a different accord or a different genre, uh, um, but near, it was nowhere near. It was just completely opposite. So really polar sort of electronic-y sound. Uh, and I just, I just really didn't enjoy it. It was such a, a letdown, um, a complete letdown of a, of a gig for me, um, because I just wanted reggae, chill. I mean, I got in the, I got in the mindset for reggae, man, and you got to get there. Though, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so then um, I did. I suppose that made me reflect on what is art. Why do you create art? Who are you creating it for? And, and you just go through all these conversations in your head. Um, and I suppose me as an artist, I create for healing a lot of the time. So I'll create a piece for me. If I feel it's universal enough, I'll put it out to the universe. I'll put it out for people to hear and listen to. And I'll also take it onto stages and perform at gigs and, and them sort of opportunities. But if I've just created, and and too many people do this and they don't question that they've done it, uh, if I've created so for self that it's quite exclusive, like it's so inclusive to me that everybody else gets excluded, I don't think it's fair to go to places of entertainment and just give out your your healing. I, I call it like healing porn. <laughs> but, but, you know, people go to, it's particularly ripe in poetry nights, um, where they're trying to battle each other over who's been through the most pain, um, in, in some word of an essence. And I know there can be quite nice spaces for that, but also that you've got to respect that there's an audience there to be entertained. And maybe there are certain nights where you can do that, but I think for me, 
don't do stuff that's too self-indulgent. Don't do stuff that's too self-related that nobody's going to get on board with. So I think I just think there's a good conversation there is when you, I'm creating art, a lot of the time I'm thinking, is this to be performed? Is this to be received with an audience? How do I want to be perceived? And, and all them questions in mind. So I think it comes down to each piece has to be written in a in a certain way, if that makes sense. So you're saying there's like a balance you need to find between sort of self-indulgence and relatability? I completely agree, yeah. yeah. I think like for that... Um, uh, for, especially, and for Pat Freddy's drop, for example, you know, maybe they, they do want to just um, gain a new audience and, and so on and try to keep branching out, branching out. But I, you can't really have your cake and eat it, which I hate that saying, actually, because if you've got your cake, you want to eat it. So it doesn't make no sense. But <laughs> you, you, you can't have it all, all the time um, because the reggae fans aren't going to want to go to a electronic night and these electronic people are all, all that certain thing. So yeah, it's a fine tune and balance. Um, and some, some pieces of creativity that you, you make has to be respected on, okay, this, this is, this is for me now, this is for my enjoyment, for my interest, for my passion. And I've done that, but then other pieces I've thought, Oh, this actually would help somebody, or this would just be nice for somebody to engage with and, and enjoy. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Mm, for sure. So in regards to getting on stage for the first time, where um, how long was it in between you getting back from South Africa and actually going on stage? And how did it go the first time? You you will think this is a lie. And it's I swear on my life, not a lie. <laughs> but um, me, me dad, uh, so my first performance performance uh, was in the dinner table with me dad. And um, it was probably one of them beer fueled moments where I'm like, oh, Dave, uh, I've, <laughs> I, I've, <laughs> I've just started doing poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and imagine my dad's response. I said, this is what he did. And he looks like me. He, just, he looked up and he went, you what? <laughs> and, I was, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I've just started doing poetry. And uh, he goes, go on then, kid, give us, give us some. And I performed this poem about my friend, hmm. and uh, and he literally he, uh, Dave, the fifty-two-year-old farmer, ex-footballer, literally just cried his eyes out. Hmm. He, he he was um, inconsolable. He was just crying, crying, crying. He couldn't believe that his son actually had something to say because I've never had anything of power before or anything worth listening to. I suppose. Hmm. Um, so he was just so, so proud and, and so shocked by it uh, that he he was like, right, come on, we're going to get you to a gig. Um, and th th this this is crazy. So we'd, we'd had that night together. I'm talking probably a few weeks later, he took me down to London and I wanted to, I've, I've always been a Russell Brand fan. I've liked Russell Brand's ethos and, and sort of how he paints pictures. I think he's a bit of a crazy figure. Hmm. Anyway, there was this private event that Russell Brand was doing called The Trues. He was doing True News. Oh, um, that was it. Yeah, I remember his YouTube channel that was based. Yeah, that. back in yeah. the day. So he'd also do little gigs, uh, hmm. but there'd only be like 60 people there or so. Um, oh, nice. And anyway, I'm in this little bar in Shoreditch 
uh, writing a poem at the time. My, my dad's gone out for the day with me, Grandma, in London to see my sister. Mm. And uh, as I'm writing, I just hear, you all right, mate? How you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm writing it. And, this, uh, and Russell Brand's there. I swear this is all true. And then uh, he's like, what are you up to then? And I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm just writing a poem, mate. And he's like, go on, Inkies, let's hear it. And then uh, I, I perform a bit of this poem. And he goes, oh, what are you doing tonight then? And I said, oh, I'm coming to see you. And he goes, well, you can perform that then when you're here. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was genuine. That was my uh, that was pretty much my first gig. Like, I performed previous to this to mates and, like, been to the pub and done stuff. But um, the first opportunity of actually getting up in front of an audience that I didn't know was a Russell Brand gig. Wow. And, and yeah, it was absolutely insane. It was such a, a crazy experience. And, you know, uh, he did a bit of his spiel and a bit of his silly stuff. And he said, before I start tonight, I've met this geezer over here from Derby and he's going to come and say a few words. So he got me up and uh, I, I, I do my poem and everyone goes mental. Um, and then, yeah, I, 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 from that moment, I thought, this is me. This is this is what I want to do. That it okay, felt... No so uh huge and it 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 then transcended not just because it was such a a big name with a big opportunity but i felt like i'd actually put a marker down i felt like mm. i'd said something uh in, of importance at that that moment that i never felt before had you had any issues with uh, stage fright or public speaking before that I'd never had real opportunity. Oh. I'd never had any moments of, of being on stages so much, but I have always been a fairly big character, I suppose you'd say, like quite an eccentric character, extroverted. Um, so I'd not had any reason or want to be on a stage, but after losing a friend and, and just feeling very... Um, unhappy with my existence and the way the world was and all these sort of feelings, uh, I felt necessary to, to go and find stages and people to talk to where I felt like I could actually make an imprint or, or help people in some way, whether it's comedy and you can make people laugh, whether it's poetry and you can make people think. I just wanted to have some form of impact. So, yeah, that's where I, I felt getting on a stage. Yes, it was um, fairly nerve-wracking, but because you've got a reason to be there, because you've got your purpose intact, uh, it didn't feel too hard because I, I knew I, I knew the cause was a little bit bigger than me, um, in, in truth. Oh, nice. I'm not sure if there's something you want to talk about, but you've been quite open with your mental health issues on your podcast. Um, what was like your low point? How did it get to that? How did you get out of it? Any tips for people uh, who might find themselves in a similar situation? I suppose... It was a, a constant build um, through through existence. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, um, a big causation of why they're so low and why they feel depressed or, or insignificant or inferior to life really transcends from childhood and from growing up. And for me, you know, I'd say we bought up on this farm and it, it is a lovely experience. And especially days like today, it's bright and beautiful. Um, but a lot of byproducts come with that, you know, to, to, to gain success and to get where you want to be in life. 
you have to be fairly tenacious. You have to build up this empire that you're trying to do. And my mum did that. But uh, at the byproduct of that, I didn't really experience much love in my life. I, I never had many opportunities of going out together. We didn't have dinners together. We didn't hug. We didn't have mo anything like that. Never, never had that. Um, and that was just who she was. I mean, she's very openly said um, in a to me as an adult, as a kid, uh, I never wanted kids. I, di I didn't want you. Um, you know, you were for your dad. Your dad wanted a kid. So it's quite uh, a lot to take on as a small person. And my dad, he was a lovely fella and he is a lovely fella. Um, but I don't think he knew how to deal with uh, having kids. And then later on when we got the farm, uh, the time with him diminished dramatically. So I didn't get to see him very much. So I just, I was, I felt very lonely as a, as a kid. I felt like I was going into a Wordsworth poem then. I wandered lonely as a cloud. <laughs> but yeah, it was... Um, it, it wasn't the archetypal childhood that you'd want to to gain tools for life and to grow strength for life. So I, I lost a lot of um, lessons in that period. So then I made a lot of clutches. Uh, first, it'd be food. I'd want to sort of feel good and coping mechanisms through overeating. And I got very big as a kid. So then all I did was get bullied horrendously at school because I was a big kid. So if you've got no love in your home and then you're just getting bullied uh, horrendously at school, all you see life is is a, a dumping ground and a, a painful experience. And it really was that low for me. I was a very depressed kid. So this kid uh, with no passion, with no interests, with no idea where the position in life was, it was, it was all going in the wrong direction anyway. Um, so I say my lowest and most pivotal point was uh pretty much being uh at a point of well I i'm gonna either clock out so it was pretty it was either traveling or i was gonna end it i, I decided that was it i I, wa I wanted to to get out of here uh one way or another because i felt so um alienated um so i think definitely traveling was um, a big part of it uh, and just experiencing other ways of living uh, was a huge element to why I understood there was other possibilities in life. There wasn't just this go to work, get a job, get a girl and die. <laughs> and that honestly is sort of how I pictured my life. Is this it? So I think that that raised questions in my mind, but I, I, I must say I got, I still got, um, depressed after traveling for a bit my, my, my truthful story is i don't know if you want it in your podcast but it involves substance and so on but i, I did I, I found uh drugs in my life and it, it again there was uh, an esoteric beauty behind it but there was also a very dark side of it and i think I love truth. So I'm as open as anybody. I could say anything to anyone, anywhere, anytime. I like the truth is only going to be constant. So I couldn't just sort of fluffy up a story and tell you where I found it from here. It, a real response to it is um, I, I found substance and that, that helped me sort of uh, gain a little bit more um, to life that I didn't know before. Which drugs were they? 
uh, psychedelics. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, the sort of more psychoactive road, but it took me into a place of mind that I'd not been. Um, I, there's a, a night in particular that that sort of met a programmed a part of me, and and that was a really interesting experience. The only thing is, I got not addicted to the substance, I got addicted to the experience. Mm. So I just kept trying to experience more and more and more and more. And uh, that ended up leading to a very, very, very dark path. But Mm. I got out of that eventually. Was that a dark dark path of reliance or was that a dark path as in you had some bad trips? I I had a really bad trip actually, uh, which involves Snoop Dogg. But... (laughs) Real uh, yeah the real one yeah yeah you wouldn't believe it but uh, <laughs> uh, again a wild night um but i i end up getting psychosis schizophrenia severe paranoia all these things because i'd just gone too far too hard down the line mm. um but yeah i i do i do think a factor of why i'm here today still um ha- has an element of uh psychedelics involved into into the sort of journey yes <laughs> oh, and I, I'll be, I don't tell that story at st- i work in schools and so on oh. uh, i don't tell that story in schools necessarily yeah. but i will if i work in a rehabilitation centers or i work in prisons or wherever i go for uh, workshops and facilitation I- i'll pick the audience and I'll sort of go, well, they can, they can deal with this experience. They, they understand. So yeah, um, that, that's a big part of my journey. So it's just a, a constant in it. For sure. And did the, the psychosis go away once you stopped taking the drugs? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much uh, a long, long, arduous road. <laughs> it was very, uh, hard doing, but I'm quite a stubborn character and, I noticed how far I was sinking because first of all, I was building up this story and I thought, oh my God, uh, there's there's a thing called pro and paranoia. So pronoia is where you think everyone's there for you and every, the story is oh, being built to help. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but still, it's all ego driven and ego based. Is that like an offshoot of narcissism? Yeah, hundred okay. um, uh, percent. And and I think that in the case of any sort of uh, illness or, or problem that you're you're driven by self related, mm. um, you know, in paranoia. If you think everyone's against you, it's still you. Yeah. It's still everybody thinks I. Nobody's thinking about it's you. Still, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought about that. But it's still a form of like narcissism, isn't it? Because like the. The guy who does nothing but thinks the government's after him. Why, why the fuck would the government be after you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, amen, brother. So, so I did. I got to that. I got to that real deep and dark side of my nature, and um, the the catalyst of healing was when I started questioning my grandma because she's the only person in my life that's remained consistent and just been a beautiful, kind figure. And I never had any of them in my life. So the second I thought she was trying to poison me or do anything to hurt me, I had to sit in my car. I cried and I thought, dude, there's no way. There's no way this woman can be against you. So that thought was so ridiculous to you that you were like, this is just paranoia. That well, that uh, you have, you must be ill. You must mm. be. So I didn't get. My mum was going to section me. Uh, a few. I was on the literal ropes of being sectioned. But um, 
And the second I thought, I, I don't want to be sectioned for start. I don't want people telling me what to do. I would not heal if people told me what to do because I, I wouldn't oh, accept so it. Annoying, wouldn't it. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. If I was broken and everyone was going to fix me or change me, I, I'm, I feel like I'd, I would have been at the time too stubborn to have taken anything in. So I would have uh, just gone into a very, very darker place. But the fact that I had that conversation with myself to go, there's no way this woman could want to hurt you. There's no way this person that's brought you up, done everything for you, helped you in any way you've ever needed, could be against you. So I sat in the car and I just thought, I've got, I've got to change. I've got to, um, I've got to become different. So I did. I stopped taking any form of drug, um, and it did. It took months and months. And luckily for me, I was on a. Um, uh, community service at the time <laughs> so I did I had a bit of structure and also I, from between going there I went home and just created poetry and, oh. and did writing so I, I was no in between I wasn't going seeing people I wasn't doing anything other than those two things and then as I started gaining my sanity back I could actually go and do a bit more sport or I could look at boxing and I, and that that brought it back round as well so it was a, a long long journey and it was months and months before I had the ability to gain access to, to rational mind. That's, that's good that you had an outlet and you also had something else to keep you busy as well um tell me about your bus uh do you so so you do a podcast it's called the back of the bus and you also your youtube channel is called the old farm bus is or is that the whole name of the podcast is the old farm no bus. that's bang on man no, yeah. it's a, yeah it's all under the bracket uh umbrella of the old farm bus that's sort of what we do um and the back of the bus session is an element of that so that's a podcast we do a, a night called uh bus king sessions oh. <laughs> and somebody has to come and be the bus king um but that's very <laughs> but that's very much um uh have you seen npr uh session tiny desk or any the oh, like desk. Okay, yeah, I think Tiny Desk do a similar thing to like Old Farm Bus, where they have lots of different things to stem from. Oh, okay. But one of their one of theirs is called the NPR sessions, and it's all about the music. So, you know, it's being filmed really professionally. We get three artists in, and the last three songs are the ones that we we really emphasise on. So we've got an audience there, but it's all about being quiet and actually listening to the art being created. So we do we do that and we do uh, workshops with our community. So all the kids coming in and uh, doing writers workshops. We've got DJs coming in soon. We've got a spray painter, lots of little fun, creative activities like that. And, and yeah, we do lots of festivals and events and stuff. So it's all under the umbrella of uh, the old farm bus. And I, I'm I've got this bus that I'm sitting in now, which is like a really big old American school bus. Mm. And I've got one down the side over there, which is our bar. So that's like a, um, a graffiti bus. And it's oh, really, I'm really proud of buses. <laughs> yeah, there's a bus over there, which is, um, yeah, more, it's bar, but we do a lot of other bits in there. And then we've got a horse box on this side, which is uh, like a studio space and so on. So we try and keep it a mixture of things throughout the week because I never could do sort of, one plain way of existence or just doing this sort of thing. It's never suited me. So I did, I wanted to create a space where it was forever changing and flexible. 
Oh, nice. They're so cool. Uh, tell me about your podcast. What made you decide to start one? Probably on a similar merit to you, man. I, I love people. I, I love stories. I, I find journeys and paths of people very fascinating and I can learn a lot by them. Um, so that was, again, the, the starting point of the catalyst. Uh, but after that, it, it built so much more up for me, sort of the networking element of meeting different people, bringing them onto the bus, seeing what we could do for one another, uh, if we could help that. And then I really like the element of learning about um, self through doing it, you know, what are my overused words? Because when you edit them back, you have to listen to yourself, don't you? And you have to hear um, sort of triggers and points where you maybe over talk or where you uh, uh, talk over somebody or whatever it is. So I, I really like that element of it as well for being able to communicate better as a person. And that's only going to elevate you in business and only elevate you in, in life, I suppose. So I love it for that premise. You do definitely learn a lot about yourself from listening back. What was your first like? Can you remember? The first episode I did? Yeah. Can you remember how you felt uh, afterwards listening to it? Oh, well, it was a funny situation because like the first two I did, I actually recorded like a year before I started the rest. Okay. So I had, I kind of then had them in back catalogue and then it was when it got to... Uh, the beginning of the what's it called? Uh, beginning of the lockdown. I was like, "Fuck, what am I gonna do?" <laughs> like, I got, and then that's when I was like, "Oh yeah, I should actually start this podcast now." <laughs> so Amazing. yeah, and then so yeah, I'd actually like lived a year in between the that and the other ones, but the first two were actually with people I already knew, so it was okay. But listening back, um, yeah, it was it was interesting to hear back. For sure. And also mm. just adjusting to how your voice sounds because you're always like, it sounds different in your head to how you hear it back, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. I think um, when you get to the state where you can actually listen to yourself back comfortably, mm. that's when you sort of know you're living your sort of authentic self out or yeah. your true self. Definitely. Because for me, the starting ones, I was obviously very nervous. Mm. And... I would keep saying like a lot, for example. It was sort of like, a bit like, and I think like is a good adding word mm. at times, but obviously if you overuse it, it took away a lot of the conversation and made it very convoluted to what I was saying. So, and I've had other guests on, but I've noticed it in them. So I've tried to help them when they've said it. So that was a good starting one for me. And then also just feeling the need. I think you're doing this very well, actually. Um, I had to talk with guests and let them know that I was um, on board and I was excited. So while they were talking, I was sort of going, yeah, oh, it's too right. And I think that come across quite clunky mm. and a little bit messy. So hearing that back, I've actually learned to to listen a lot better and take on what people are saying and digest it to come out with better questions. So yeah, it really helped. Oh yeah, it's super fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's oh, it's such a well, it's it's the best art form I've ever been involved in. I think it's such an art form to podcast, and people don't value how explorative you can be with it how hard to conduct an hour's conversation or whatever you do an hour and a half so people think oh it's just a chat and then you get those guests that come on undermining it 
and and they really can struggle but then you get the ones that respect it as an art form know it's a bit of a dance and you've got to shape it together and that's where you have the best chats and best conversations because they understand how creative you can be with it ah nice so what you got coming up coming up uh so we're doing lots of events um we're going down the route of airbnb as well for the winter <laughs> so yeah we 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 either considering sort of shepherd's huts style things or we're going to go with something a bit more quirky and unique so it might be um another bus but like a double decker bus oh nice say if it's like families come in i'd quite like them to be able to still get their quiet time like downstairs they can be together and the kids can be upstairs in a little room or whatnot so yeah i I think definitely going down the airbnb route but for the bus um in the creative terms we've got loads of workshops for the kids and a couple of music events and stuff coming up still so yeah very excited about that man ah nice and one last question uh what up-and-coming artists should people look out for Oh, great question, brother. Great question. Up and comers. So he's not a massive up and comer, but he's somebody you should definitely check out if you don't know him. He's a motor mouth. He's a very good friend of mine. Uh, But definitely Spotify him, YouTube him. Oh, my God, you will be amazed. He's like a beatboxer. He's got a loop pedal. Um, First of all, he'll put like a... And then he can just take it to... So he's got it all go, and then he'll sing over the top of it, and it's just absolutely another level. Uh, there's Joey Collins, um, Stingray and the J, amazing uh, jazz band. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think they're they're a good three. I jump at for for a start. Motor Mouth, Joey Collins, and Stingray and the J. Definitely look up to those guys. <laughs> Dave, I have to check him out. Hey. Thanks for listening and thank you to Mike for joining me. Go check out Spoken Word Poetry, Filmmaking, Podcast and all the other ruckus that happens on this farm via the links in the description. That's about it from me. Okay, nice one. Bye.